In our church, we encourage our parents to catechize their children. And I love hearing children give answers to good questions that help frame theological understanding in their minds. And the children's catechism, the first one that we begin with, starts like this, or it has in the early section of it these questions. Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve. I hear some of our kids out there, right? Well, in fact, if you're here, go ahead and help me out with this, okay? So who were our first parents? Of what were our first parents made? God made the body of Adam out of the ground and formed Eve from the body of Adam. And what did God give Adam and Eve besides bodies? He gave them souls that could never die. Next question, have you a soul as well as a body? Yes, I have a soul that could never die. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them with undying souls. Adam, out of the ground, Eve from the body of Adam, and their descendants after them have all been created with souls that will never die. What that means is that any proper understanding of biblical anthropology has to deal with the reality that after physical death, there's a continued existence of these undying souls. Bodies decay, but physical death is not the end of existence for men and women because we all have souls that will never die. So when Christians die and their bodies begin to decay, though we miss them and we grieve over them and we are sorry to have lost them to our fellowship here on earth, we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope because we know that their souls go immediately to be with the Lord waiting for that great day of resurrection when their glorified bodies will be reunited with their souls and they will live forever with the Lord. Their undying souls are united to their Creator through Jesus Christ to live in eternal bliss forever. They have, in the words of the Puritan John Owen, left the land of the dying and entered the land of the living. But it's not only Christians who have souls that will never die. So do unbelievers. And when unbelievers die, they don't cease to exist either. They too leave the land of the dying, but death doesn't usher them into the land of the living. Death for the unbeliever ushers them into the land of the damned. We don't like to think about hell. And in one sense, that is completely understandable because hell is an abyss. It's a place of final conscious banishment from the very loving presence of our great and glorious God. The very idea of hell is offensive to many people. It doesn't fit in with their ideas about God. Often, objections to what the Bible says about hell are couched in terms of the love of God. 
How can a loving God send anyone to hell? Or how is it loving or just for God to punish sinners infinitely? Is it really fair for eternal punishment to be the penalty for crimes that are committed in time? Even many self-professed Christians are uncomfortable with the clear pointed teachings on hell because they find the teachings on hell incongruent with what they believe about Jesus. This was illustrated just recently, last week, when the former Baptist Bible teacher Beth Moore posted some of her criticisms of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Mrs. Moore explained that years ago when reading that sermon, she was prompted to write on a page next to it, but I have Jesus. And then she explained her meaning. She said the preaching of Edwards would have made her feel like dying and running away from God. Jesus, she said, gives people dignity and makes them feel like that in his eyes they are worth saving. Well, the thousands of affirming responses that she received to her musings highlight the disconnect that exists in the minds of many modern Christians between the ministry of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of hell. It may also betray real ignorance of what the Bible teaches about both Jesus and hell. Because the foremost teacher of hell in the Bible is Jesus. We learn more about eternal damnation from him than we do from any other biblical character. And so to consider this subject this afternoon, it is appropriate that we would go to the very words of our Lord and consider what it is that he has to say about those who die in a state of sin. Our text is Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 through 46. Matthew 25, 41 through 46 where Jesus gives us a glimpse, a foretaste of what's going to happen at the end of the age. I want to begin reading in verse 31 and hear how he divides up that scene between those who will be welcomed by him on that day of judgment and those who will be rejected by him. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them 
Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you did not give me food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them and say, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is a place of eternal punishment for everyone who dies in his sin. In these verses, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what will happen at the end of history. He tells us what's going to take place on that great day of judgment when he himself will come with all of his holy angels and he will judge the world, the nations. He will take his rightful place on that throne of judgment and all the nations of the earth will be gathered before him and people will be separated, sheep from goats, his left hand from the right hand. Everyone will be there. You will be there. I will be there. Your parents will be there. Your grandparents will be there. Your loved ones, rich, poor, It matters not where you have been, what your life was. On that day, all of us will be called into the courtroom of God. And on that day, every one of us will hear one of two verdicts. We will hear either come, you who are blessed by the Father, and enter the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or you will hear Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Those are the the only two options, heaven or hell. You can't opt out of this judgment. You will not be able to find any neutral ground on which to stand. Every person who has ever lived will spend eternity somewhere, either with God in eternal love and joy, or under God's wrath, in eternal damnation. And note that what Jesus says he will use to judge people. He's going to judge people on the basis of their works, how they cared for the poor and the needy, the hungry, the sick, the imprisoned. He's not judging them for their works, as we just heard. Not because you did these things and you did them to a certain level, then I welcome you. Or because you didn't do them to a certain level, I reject you. No, he's looking at their works as evidence of their natures. He is using their works as the indicator of what their lives have really been. In exactly the same way that text that Brother Paul started with about Trees and fruits. If you see oranges hanging from a tree, 
you can rightly, safely deduce that that is an orange tree. But the fruit doesn't make the tree an orange tree. The orange tree produces the fruit. And the fruit can become then a testimony to the kind of tree it is. In the same way, the fruit of a person's life will reveal whether or not he or she is born again, trusting Christ and in right standing with God. Now, I've said all that because I want to call your attention to verses 41 through 46 and consider what these verses teach us about hell. And what I want to do is specifically point out five things that are true about hell, about eternal damnation. The first is that hell is a real place. That should be obvious, not only from Jesus' teaching here, but from what he says elsewhere in the Gospels. Here he says, hell is a place that has been specifically prepared. Verse 41, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels. These are the arch enemies of God, the ones who rebelled against him in heaven and were cast to the earth, being reserved for that day when he will forever banish them in that prepared place. Hell, the eternal fire has been prepared for them. Just as Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 2, that he was about to go and prepare a place for them so that where he was, they could be with him also. He prepares a place not only for his disciples, he prepares a place for his enemies who refuse to become his disciples. He prepares a place for the devil and his demons. Many people don't believe in a literal hell. Joel mentioned yesterday these modern studies that indicate that currently about three-fourths, three out of four Americans have some kind of acknowledgement that hell exists. When you drill down a little bit and start getting specific about how the Bible describes hell, those percentages drop significantly. But what is most interesting is just a few percent think that they have any prospect of going to hell. Many pastors and theologians and consequently many churches have given up on hell altogether. Some have been so brash as to come out and say that hell is a myth or perhaps only offer up a watered-down version of that which is taught in the Word of God. The late philosophical theologian John Hick referred to hell as a, quote, grim fantasy, which is not only, quote, morally revolting, but is also, he said, a serious perversion of the Christian gospel. For others who bear the name of Christ, hell is an embarrassment to them, something that surely refined Christians should have outgrown by now. Clark Pinnock would be in this category, who at one time was the father of the inerrancy movement in the Southern Baptist Convention, but before he died, drifted so far from orthodoxy that he dismissed hell altogether. He wrote, How can one imagine for a moment that the God who gave his son to die for sinners because of his great love for them would install a torture chamber somewhere in the new creation 
in order to subject those who reject him to everlasting pain. But Jesus speaks quite simply, clearly, unambiguously of a place of torment into which people will be objectively cast. He's teaching a literal hell. He is telling us that it exists. It's a real place. There are people there right now. There will be more who will be cast into that place before the end of history. Well, not only is hell a real place, not only is it literally true, but secondly, hell is a state of separation from God. Depart from me, away from my presence. We find this emphasized throughout Jesus' teaching on this subject. For example, as we just heard from Matthew 7, 23, he will say to those false professors on that day, depart from me, I never knew you, you're workers of lawlessness. Or Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12, on the occasion of that Gentile centurion's great faith, he said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, presence of God, fellowship with God while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-two thirteen, 13, parable of the wedding feast. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew twenty-five thirty, the parable of the talents and the man who just buried his talent. Jesus said that man will be told, the the steward over that man will be told, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul makes the same point theologically as he writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Speaking of those who will be cast into hell, he says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. To be in hell is to be separated from everything good. In this life, Everybody enjoys some of God's blessings. You're breathing. Your heart is beating. You have at least enough health to be here and to participate in a conference like this. And and that's true, not just for Christians. Atheists breathe God's air. Those who laugh at the very existence of God, nevertheless, are fed by him every day. And that which they eat is made nutritious for their body to give them a measure of health. Muslims can enjoy friendship, happiness, pleasures. God is kind to his enemies. He shows common grace to everyone. But in hell, there will be no common grace. In hell, there will be nothing good. 
Some people talk brashly, boisterously about, I want to go to hell because I want to be with my friends. You won't have any friends in hell. There's no friendship in hell. There's only life under the wrath and condemnation of the God against whom you would have spent your whole life rebelling. To say that hell is a place of separation from God does not mean that God will be completely absent from hell. He is omnipresent. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your presence or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Cartoonists like to make light of hell by picturing the devil, usually with horns and a pitchfork, running hell. The devil's not in charge of hell. God runs hell. God's the one who prepared hell. And he operates it with his justice and wrath and retribution. He eternally executes his judgment against his enemies in hell. To be separated from the Lord and cast into hell does not mean that a person will be finally free from God. Such people will remain eternally accountable to him. God will remain the Lord over their existence. But in hell, a person will forever be separated from the kindness of God, from the love of God, the mercy of God, his grace and goodness. In hell, you'll be consigned to deal with God only in his wrath, his holiness and justice. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul speaks of when Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels, the very scene Jesus talks about in our text. He says, God will pour out tribulation on the enemies of his people. And then in verses 8 and 9, he goes on to say, he will do this in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You you see this? It's God who executes his vengeance on those who will be cast forever into hell. Yes, he'll be present in hell, but it will be a terrifying presence. All the blessings of life, the good things that people come to take for granted will be absent in that place with that experience. There will be no love, no joy, no kindness, no peace, no beauty, no rest, no pleasure. No more opportunities to repent. No wonder Jesus repeatedly says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, bitter anger unending rage. Well, not only is hell a real place, a place of a state of separation from God, but it's also a state of association with accursed people and the devil and his demons. 
again in verse 41, he says to the cursed ones, you are to be cast into this fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. They're cursed. And they're going to be there with other people who are cursed. Well, who is cursed? What does it mean to be cursed by God? Well, Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law to do them. All that it takes to be cursed by God under the condemnation of his law is to fail to be perfect. To fail to obey his commandments inwardly and outwardly every moment of every day of your life. See, God requires perfection because he himself is perfect. He requires complete righteousness because he himself is righteous. He made our parents, the first people, Adam and Eve, upright. They were integrated. So they knew what was right. And they loved what was right. And they did what was right all the time up to the point of sinning and rebelling against them. And they became disintegrated. So now they know some things to be right, but they don't love them. They love some things that are right, but they don't do them. And their lives are disintegrated. And they're unrighteous. Sin ruins our human righteousness, and it destroys any hope of abiding by all the things written in God's law. Therefore, God's law condemns all of us by nature because of our sin, and by nature, as Paul says, we are children of God's wrath. We come into the world, we're born into this state of condemnation that has been bequeathed to us from our father, Adam. We're liable to eternal condemnation because of that. Everyone who dies in that state of condemnation into which he or she was born will be cast into hell. As I previously mentioned, hell's been particularly prepared by God for the devil and his demons Satan was the first sinner who rebelled against him in heaven, and the Lord prepared a place for the devil and his demons so that in the end of the age when history is over, the devil and his demons will be cast there forever. It's a horrendous place for a horrendous crime against God. And the devil and his demons know that that day is coming. It's been revealed in Scripture Revelation 20.10, the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. God put it in his book that that day is on his calendar. And even when Jesus was on earth, demons recognized this. The Gadarene demoniac spoke out on one occasion and he says to Jesus, have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? They know that they have a limited amount of time before everything will be over for them and they'll be cast eternally in that place prepared for them. 
The Bible is very clear to the devil. He doesn't doubt its veracity. He knows that a day is coming when he, is his, he and his will be cast into hell forever. But in his utter wickedness, he wants to take as many of God's image bearers as he can with him. And so he constantly plots and strategizes. Peter says he's like a roaring lion, just prowling, looking for opportunity to use your sin looking for opportunity to ensnare people, to keep people blinded, to fill them with lies so that he can have them there with him forever in that place of unspeakable torment. And what a tragic irony it is that many people who do not believe in the devil today will wind up spending eternity with him in torment People are made for God. Hell was made for the devil. And yet people who die in their sin without Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will go to spend an eternity with the one being in all the universe who is most unlike God. And that's the devil's goal. Hell's a real place. It's a place of separation from God in his goodness and mercy and kindness. It's a place of association with the devil and his angels and cursed people. But Jesus goes on to describe hell as a place of punishment, a state of punishment. He uses fire in verse 41. He uses the word punishment in verse 46. Hell is a place of retribution. It's a place where justice is being served through the payment of crimes that have been committed. You know, our penal code in this nation is based upon retributive justice, lex talionis, that the punishment should fit the crime. There are appropriate punishments for specific crimes, and those who do evil must pay for the evil they have done. And that's why we have prisons. That's why we have fines. That's why we have executions. We believe that in a just society, criminals should be punished for what they have done against the law in ways that are appropriate for what they have done. Justice demands that. And where do we get that idea? We get it from God himself. The Bible clearly teaches that God is a God of retributive justice. For justice to be served, criminals must be punished for their crimes. The consequence for evil actions and evil doers means that they should suffer for the things that they have done in a way that is commensurate with the heinousness of their crimes. That's why we read in the Old Testament, page after page of the Old Testament penal code, how various kinds of punishments were to be exacted for various kinds of crimes. God's a God of retributive justice, perfect justice. That is why hell exists, to punish the devil and his angels for rebelling against God and all those who, like the devil and his angels, rebel against God without repentance. 
Hell's a place that is torturous and horrible precisely because it is a place of retributive justice. This is a state of existence under the eternal wrath of God. That's why it's called a fire. Or as Jesus put it in Mark 9, 43, an unquenchable fire. Why does Jesus use that language? It is to expand our minds to cause us to sit back and and think, what kind of horror is envisioned here? When Jesus would speak of hell, he often used the word Gehenna, which means the, the valley of Hinnon. And that was a valley located on the south side of Jerusalem, a valley that was associated with child sacrifices of the pagan god Moloch. By the first century, it was something like a, a big trash dump where every kind of refuse was thrown, dead animals, corpses of criminals, rubbish. All were taken there to be burned, and there were constant fires in those days in Gehenna outside of Jerusalem, and it provided a ready analogy for our Lord to describe this state of torment and punishment known as hell. Seven times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to hell as a place of weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's a place of punishment by design, a place of pain, suffering by design. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story of what is going on in hell and something of the suffering that takes place there when he describes the different destinies of this rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was poor. and When he died trusting in the Savior, he went to heaven. The rich man had all that he needed, but when he died in his sin, he went to hell. And as Jesus describes it, He says that this rich man, being in torment, looked up to heaven and begged Abraham to send Lazarus from heaven with even a drop of water to provide some relief. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Jesus is impressing upon us the reality that there is a state of eternal existence that is horrific, that is in many ways beyond our comprehension. We we couldn't imagine it. We wouldn't allow ourselves to concoct it, and we would scarce believe it if it hadn't been so clearly revealed in his word. What's the worst pain you've ever felt? How long did you have to endure it? So I was thinking about this message and reading and studying. I was reminded of the worst pain I've ever felt. Several years ago, I was struck by lightning. And the night after, 
I felt like I was on fire inside. And I crawled out of bed and started crawling down the hall. If someone had offered me death, I would have taken it. And it was relentless. And I didn't know how I could bear up. But God, in his kindness, this side of hell provided medications. So with that pain that I never want to experience again, I didn't think I could endure at the time, there came relief. Hell will be so much worse than that with no prospect of relief. Sometimes people talk about hell on earth. I talked to a soldier one time who'd been involved in some real intense combat in Iraq. And I asked him, so what do you think hell is like? He said, hell is Iraq. I said, did you ever get to rest while you were on duty? Did you ever get to drink cool water? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, that's nothing like hell. Not even the tip of a finger wetted with water is allowed to those who are suffering in hell. Hell's a place of God's wrath poured out without mercy, without any hope of relief. And it will be that way forever. It's real. Separation from God and his goodness, associated with the devil and his demons and those that are cursed, place of excruciating punishment, and it's everlasting. Jesus says it plainly in verse 46. It's a place of everlasting punishment. Hell goes forever. There are some Christians who even want to lay claim to the label evangelical who've tried to mitigate this and suggest that yes, hell is real and all these other things I've said about it are true, but it just can't go on forever. But you notice verse 46, how Jesus puts it. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The same adjective is used of punishment and life. If hell is not eternal, we have reason to question whether heaven will be eternal. But hell is the fire that will never be quenched. Again, listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 9. How can we hear this and play around with sin? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled with, than with two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. 
It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Many people are most offended by this aspect of hell. And again, that's somewhat understandable in light of all that's true of hell. It is a horrific thought. Why have infinite, unending punishment for a finite life of sin? Well, there are at least three reasons that I think we can see from Scripture that would answer that question. One is, sin really is that wicked. We have so downsized sin in our day that we don't see it in the light of how God reveals it to be in his word. The slightest sin is cosmic treason against our God. Any sin, no matter how justifiable we might think it to be, is rebellion against our Creator. It's wicked. I think our emotions have become somewhat cauterized against sin. The medieval, medieval theologian Anselm said that if we could understand the wickedness of sin, that you would not be willing to commit the slightest sin to save the whole world. And yet I fear that too many of us would be quick to take that bargain today. Sin really is that wicked. No matter how wicked you think it is, it's worse. Secondly, infinite punishment is for infinite sin. Infinite sin. Brother Paul said it yesterday. Hell is not a place that Sinners go to and then spend the rest of eternity wishing they could get out and be reconciled to God. No, there is no grace in hell. There is no repentance in hell. And those who are cast into hell will spend eternity cursing God, hating God, going on forever in the rebellion against God. They'll never stop sinning in hell. The third reason for hell being eternal is because of the greatness and the character of the person against whom we sin. The reason hell is so difficult for so many is because they have such a deficient view of God. They don't think rightly about God. You know, if, if you were to murder me, there'd be consequences. You've broken law, and that law will come to bear upon the action that you've taken against me. But if you were to murder the President of the United States, the consequences would be far more severe. Why? Because of the disparity between me and 
a person who is an exalted status over a nation. All sin is committed against the supreme being in the universe. Similarly, if you were to murder someone who was a thief, there would be consequences for that. But if you were to take a little one-week-old baby and murder that, there would be even more severe consequences because of the innocence of that child. Absolutely no mitigating circumstances that could be concocted there. No matter how great or glorious or holy or innocent you understand God to be, brothers and sisters, your conceptions of God fall short of the reality. And all sin is sin that is committed against the infinitely holy, infinitely good, infinitely kind, and infinitely supreme God of the universe. And the only way crimes against that being can be justly punished is through infinite punishment. Anything less would be a miscarriage of justice. If hell didn't exist, then God in his righteousness would not be recognized and honored for who he is. To, to downplay hell is to drain the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of its power and significance. Because infinite crimes against the infinite God requires an infinite payment. And the only way there can be an infinite payment for sin is through the infinite God-man who himself took the sins of his people on his shoulders and endured God's wrath against our rebellion toward him and on the cross endured God's wrath. That's our hope. Hell is a horrible reality. It's the final eternal place of judgment for all who die outside of Christ. And I know, I know, I'm thinking of them myself. We, we have loved ones, we have friends that have breathed their last in this life and there's no reason to hope that they died reconciled to God and and it's a horrible thought. It's an emotionally wrenching thought. But the Word of God teaches us this because it is true. And God teaches us this so that we will learn more and more to submit ourselves to the realities of the world in which we live, which is a world that has been created by the supreme true, only living God against whom we've all sinned such that we come into this world liable to eternal damnation. And brothers and sisters, to have impressed upon us with wonder <laughs> that God has saved us from that. God has kept us out of hell. It's a horrible reality. And yet I know after I've said all that I have 
opportunity and ability to say in 45 minutes, I, I know that I, I haven't said what ought to be said about this doctrine. It's like stammering and stuttering and having a faint sense of the horrors, the terrors of hell. We must believe what Jesus taught about hell. Don't think that you're honoring Jesus if you deny hell or if you pretend that it's less than what he has taught us it is. It was designed for the devil and his demons, and for him it is unavoidable. But the devil and his demons want to take us with them. And do you know what you have to do to go to hell? Some people think that to go to hell, you have to commit some, some really big sins. And if you can just avoid those big sins, then you can avoid the danger of hell. That's why 96% of Americans think that, yeah, there's probably a hell, but it's not going to be for me. I haven't murdered anybody. I don't sleep around. I'm not a thief. But did you hear the way Jesus described those who were cursed, cast into that everlasting fire? Do you see what he said? He said, you did not. You did not. Five times, you did not. You know what you need to do to go to hell? Nothing. Nothing. Just live the way that you were born. Go through life thinking that you know best. Try to be a good person or a bad person. You did not. Hell's not just for notorious sinners, but for all sinners who die under the curse of God. Everyone who dies not trusting Christ will enter into eternal condemnation. And yet Jesus has taught us in his word that everyone who's not trusting him right now is under condemnation at this moment. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's not the wrath of God will come to him. It hangs over unbelievers right now. It's a sobering thought. Jesus had 12 disciples, and yet one of them turned out to be a hypocrite. Someone who walked with the other disciples, followed Jesus, was trusted among them, and yet in the final analysis was shown to be among those we heard about from Matthew 7, 21 through 23, who might say, Lord, Lord, but don't know him. So it would be presumptuous of me to think in a congregation like this that everybody is born again. I mean, after all, it's a, it's a Bible conference, and we've all come and set aside time so that we can be together around the Word of God, but I wonder, I wonder, who is here under the wrath of God? It might be that you know you are. 
And perhaps you've been tormented by that thought. You've been religious and you've been trying to do the right things with the right people at the right time, but as you've listened to these messages and studied God's Word and you've heard these songs being sung, there's been a growing sense of conviction in your heart and soul that you don't know this God savingly. Friend, I have great news for you. Why do you think Jesus spent so much time telling us about hell? So that he could torture our imaginations? No, so that he could warn us not to go there. So that he could assure us that there's salvation from the wrath of God against our sin. That's why Jesus became a man. That's why he obeyed the commandments. That's why he laid down his life on the cross to endure hell in behalf of everyone and anyone who would trust him. So trust him. Receive him. He is dead for you. He is willing to have you to make you God's own child simply by receiving him. Why would you not receive this great and glorious Savior who is yours through faith? There's so many implications of this, brothers and sisters. As we believe what God says, what the Lord Jesus has said about these things, we must never lose sight of hell. We deserve to be in hell. You know, I, around our church, you know, people ask me sometimes, you know, how you doing? I said, well, I'm not in hell. <laughs> and uh, one guy said to me, that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> I said, yeah, but it's a really good bar. <laughs> you know, it's really strong. And I mean, we should be there. We should be there. Every one of us have committed sin against our Creator that deserves hell. And the only reason we're not in hell is because of His grace and His mercy to sinners in Christ, because He sent His Son to hell on our behalf on the cross. Oh, we must never lose sight of what the Bible teaches about hell. We need to recognize the kindness and mercy of God in teaching us about hell. What a warning. It, when, when God sent Jonah into Nineveh, he was revealing that they were liable to his judgment. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Why did he just destroy them? Why send a prophet? With no message of hope, by the way. Why? In his kindness and mercy, he warns. That's what the doctrine of hell in the Bible is about. It's a warning. It's a warning to those who are willing to receive what God has revealed. This is what our sins deserve. Brothers and sisters, we must think about the eternal destiny of people we know. People we meet. We need to repent of our lack of concern for the souls of friends and family and for the hundreds of millions in our world today who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ as a Savior from the wrath of God.
And we need to warn those who are living under his wrath right now. Warn them of their destiny if they do not repent. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's probably thinking about what Jesus said in Matthew 25. And then he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Why is our evangelism so anemic? Why are we so reticent? Could it be, could it be that we really don't know the terror of the Lord revealed in hell? Spend time meditating on this horrible teaching, this reality. And as we do, remember that the people that we love, the children in our homes, the friends and co-workers around us, our neighbors that have not come to receive Christ Jesus as Lord are under the wrath of God and have this horrific destiny before them unless they are rescued. And knowing the terror of the Lord, persuade them, go to them. Follow in the footsteps of your Savior and warn them of the wrath that will come. Believe, like the Apostle Paul, that hell is such a horrific reality that those whom we know and love, we know they have undying souls, must be persuaded. We must plead with them and tell them that there is a Savior from the wrath of God. Oh, may God embolden us with such love for undying souls. Let's pray together. Father, your word is true. We believe it. We have no reason to doubt anything that you say. This reality that's been revealed is so disturbing to us. And yet when we contemplate it in the light of who you are, we understand and we say yes and amen. It is right that you should pour your wrath out against rebellious sinners. But here we sit. You've revealed your son to us. You've given up your son for us. And and we deserve to be in hell. And you rescued us. Never let us forget. Never let us lose sight of the terrors of this reality. Make us like Jesus, that we would be very willing to warn people of the wrath to come. Make us like Paul that we might know the fear of the Lord to the degree that we would persuade people to be reconciled to you through the provisions that you have made in your Son. Seal the truth of your word to us today. For Jesus' sake, amen.